The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. The girls were last seen headed to a party that they were never able to find. I'm starting to be pulled ahead. I haven't figured out what's happened to these these girls yet, but whatever it was uh, is pulling me uh, very, very intensely to that moment. It's not good. Flashes of very disturbing images. It's like a spray of, of blinding white light. And then darkness, nothing. I keep hearing this sound like a... Um, you know the sound that happens when a, uh, when a dumpster is closed? They went out intending for it to be a short evening, but they never came back. society something you are listening to serial spirits the podcast Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It is me, your host, Brendan Shea, and with me as always, still in quarantine, is the beautiful, the lovely. Annie Weaves, how is it, Shea Bay? (sighs) Just like you said. (laughs) You know, when this episode comes out, we don't know where we'll be at, how far into quarantine we are, but they say here in the United States that this coronavirus hasn't even hit its peak yet it's, it's to not going away for a while it, it's not so you might as well hunker down and just get used to it because it's gonna it, it's gonna be a while well thank god i'm essential thank god i'm an essential employee and i still get to work which kind of breaks up the monotony a little bit of having to sit at home all day long but still well i've gone from working 40 hours plus a week to four hours a week who would have thought that working in the healthcare profession, you would actually get furloughed. That's exactly what happened to me. But I work more in administration than I do. I'm not an RN. So again, a huge thanks to everybody that's out there on the front lines fighting this. People continue to take this seriously because if we don't take it seriously now, we're going to have a much bigger fight on our hands a month from now. If you don't have to go anywhere, just stay home. I mean, 
It's really, really hard. It is. I mean, I have a daughter in a different state. Uh, she's two hours away from me, and I haven't been able to see her going on a month now, and it's only probably going to get worse. And it, it really sucks. It sucks for a lot of people. So we want it to go away as quickly as possible. So just do what they're asking you to do. Wash your hands, stay at home, unless you really have to go out and get something. And then think about it. At the end of this, there are going to be so many new episodes of Snapped because everybody's going to snap and murder their partners. You're going to have a whole new series to watch. It's going to be fantastic. Was that a plug for Oxygen? No, it was just a reference to... Me oh, and you, oh, yeah, snapped us. us. Snap. <laughs> so, we're, so essentially, you guys, whoever's in the true crime genre, will be doing a podcast about two podcasters who got put on quarantine together and who snapped. did true crime and snapped, and they yeah. both murdered each other. Okay, that's there not you cool. go. So, Shay, but in this time that we've been quarantined home together, we have watched one of the most fantastic things that has come to not really TV but Netflix. In maybe forever, you want to talk about our new best friend, Joe Exotic? Oh, Joe Exotic. You know what? It's true crime. It's also, I guess, comedy in a way, but it has, it ties the true crime into it. I mean, they talk about all these different things, and Joe is in jail for, for a murder for hire plot. There is, this is no coincidence that the week that the nation becomes quarantined, that comes out and is dropped in our laps. And it's like, here's a little jewel to get you through this. I think Joe Exotic knew this was coming. That Carol Baskin, Carol Corona Baskin. Yeah, yeah. Corona Baskin. That's probably your real name. Probably so. No coincidence there. So if you guys haven't watched The Tiger King, please do, because it is the absolute gem of the year on Netflix. Yeah, it is gold. And it, it I honestly, you know, my theory is he's innocent. And I think he was set up. I think he was set up too. I think he got, I don't want to give it all away, but I think he got scared. And I'll be darned if there's not a part two or a season two coming. There's got to be. I hope so. You can't just leave it the way it is. It's just getting good. Yeah. And it was like, what, five years in the making that they were filming this whole thing and then everything. Kind of like making a murder. Well, they were were doing this documentary about this guy who was exonerated and bam. Something happened where he was put in jail for murder for hire. It's crazy. It's insane. But it's good. It's worth a watch. And I mean, you'll laugh the whole time as well as feel sorry. And at the end of the day, the people who suffered the most, not even people, it's the animals. The animals. The animals are the biggest victim in this this whole thing. And uh, everyone forgets about that. They talk about Joe Exotic. But I mean, really, the animals are the ones who, who are the once you suffer the most. That's exactly it's right. Sad. So it's very sad, but it's it's very much um, something that you need to watch while you're quarantined because you'll get a laugh, you'll get a shock or two in all of it, and it's amazing. So we were we just painted the uh, other room that we normally record in every day. So we moved... Because we had nothing else to do. Yeah, we had nothing Literally, else to we're do. watching paint dry. So we moved out into a little bit of a bigger room. So you might hear a slight echo, a slight difference in the room, but that's because we're in a different room. We had to get an episode out. So this would give us enough time to just build our dream podcasting room. Definitely. Just like buy some drywall and just make it exactly as we want it. Exactly. Oh, man, you read my mind. God, maybe quarantine ain't going to be that bad with you. I don't know. It's not good. So what what are we doing today? We got a very crazy story. It's a sad story. It's still almost a mystery. And I looked into it a little bit, but you did the research on most of it. And it's it kind of takes twists and turns all over the place. The story that we're talking about this week is a double murder that is 
may be solved, maybe not solved. It's bringing in the question of how ethical is it to use genealogical databases for DNA research for crimes. So you got a little bit of murder, you got a little bit of forensics in this. It's an interesting story that is still playing out right now. So you're talking about like DNA stuff, like, you know, the Ancestry.com stuff and 23andMe that people do where they submit their DNA so they can find their genealogy, their heritage, that kind of thing. Kind of, sort of. Yeah, we'll get into it at the end of the story. So So this story gets interesting and we're going to get into it right now. This is a special report from WDHN News. Thanks for being with us tonight in this special report. Let's take you to Northern Coffee County this evening. An exclusive WDHN interview with J.B. Beasley's father concerning the arrest of the man accused of murdering his daughter and her best friend. News 18's Mike Gerspan says Hilton Lanier Beasley is skeptical tonight that the man arrested in his daughter's death is actually the killer. At his Jack Community home in Northern Coffee County, Hilton Lanier Beasley is skeptical. 45-year-old Coley McCraney of Dothan is the murderer of his daughter and her best friend, Tracy Hollett. This July marks the 20th anniversary. Both girls were found fatally shot in the trunk of Beasley's black Mazda. He's been told it would be difficult for one person to commit such a heinous double murder. My uh, advisor in this case, Mr. Y.K.D. Williams, that probably uh, this is not the work of a single person. May be wrong, but I, the, my attitude is I just have to wait and evaluate. Beasley fondly remembers his daughter, J.B., along with her best friend, Tracy, and what a joy they would bring to just about everyone they met. She was intelligent. She was, she was energetic. She was athletic. Uh, she was kind, although she was very competitive. And... Uh, she was just a, a, and had a, a keen sense of humor. She was just a, a joy to be around. Keeping it local in Coffee County, Mike Rispan, WDHN News. And Scott Roberts is with us tonight. Before we touch on that, though, despite him being skeptical there that McCraney is the murderer, he believes in the legal system, he told us. Uh, that a 12-member Dale County jury could convict McCraney without a reasonable doubt. He'd be satisfied uh, that the suspect is indeed the killer of his daughter and her best friend. And so uh, a nice report there by Mike tonight uh, from really someone we have not heard from in these past two decades. Mm -hmm. Two murdered teens, a bizarre false confession, and a piece of genealogical DNA that may bring a murderer to justice 20 years later. This is the double murder of Tracy Hollett and J.B. Beasley. Tracy and JB were two 17-year-old girls from Dothan, Alabama, who disappeared on July 31, 1999. It was JB's birthday, and the girls left home that night, heading to a party at a location that they had never been. The girls left home just after 10 p.m., but were supposed to be home at their 11.30 curfew. Sadly, they never made it back. The girls left in JB's 1993 Black Mazda, driving towards the party in Midland City, about 10 miles from their home. Somehow along the way, Tracy and JB became lost. At 10.30 p.m., the girls stopped at a BP station in Headland, Alabama, 
and used a payphone to call friends to ask for better directions to the party. At 11.30 p.m., still lost, the girls pulled into a gas station in Ozark, Alabama, more than 20 miles northwest of Dothan. The store had closed, but the girls encountered a woman in the parking lot, Marilyn Merritt, who gave them directions to Highway 231 that would lead them back to Dothan. Merritt later told police of the encounter with the girls and stated that nothing seemed amiss about the girls at the time of their conversation. Before leaving the gas station, Tracy called her mother from a payphone to tell her they had not found the party, but had gotten directions and were on their way home. This is the last time anyone would report speaking with either Tracy or JB. By early the next morning, the girls had not arrived back home and were reported missing by their families. Just after 8 a.m., JB's black Mazda was found parked on the side of the road in Ozark, only a mile from the gas station where they had stopped to ask for directions. The car was unlocked and the driver's side window was rolled down several inches. Both girls' purses were in the car and appeared to be untouched, and JB's driver's license was on the dashboard in plain view. The only thing missing were JB's car keys. Six hours later, Ozark police were still searching for the girls and decided to have the car towed to impound. However, before the tow truck arrived, police popped the trunk of the car and made a grisly discovery. In the trunk of the car were the bodies of Tracy Hollett and J.B. Beasley. Both girls had been shot in the head at close range. The girls were fully dressed, their shoes muddy, and their pants wet from the knees down. A 9mm shell rested on Tracy's leg. Autopsy showed that neither girl had drugs or alcohol in their systems. However, semen was present on J.B.'s bra and shirt, leading police to believe the crime was sexually motivated. A palm print was also pulled from the trunk of the car. No witnesses came forward with any information, and no suspects were immediately identified. Who and why anyone would want to murder two innocent teens baffled the small southern town. A $35,000 reward was put up for any information leading to an arrest in the case. For a month, the case sat dormant, until September 1, 1999, when an unlikely suspect came forward with a story. Well, multiple stories. 28-year-old mechanic Johnny Barentine left his house at 11.30 p.m. on the night Tracy and JB were murdered, heading to the same gas station where the girls were last seen to buy milk for his two-year-old son. Barentine, who had only completed the seventh grade, arrived home at 1 a.m., visibly upset, and told his wife that he had been hit by a black truck on Herring Avenue, close to where the girls' bodies were later found. Barentine told police that, after recalling his encounter to a friend, the friend had advised him to talk with police. But in a four-hour-long interview with authorities, Barentine changed his story six times, only beginning with the speeding truck at the scene. He then claimed that he had picked up a tattooed man on his way to the gas station, and upon arriving there, the man got into a car with two teenage girls. The tattooed man told Barentine to follow him and the girls, and he did so to Herring Avenue. He claimed he saw the man get out of the car, heard two gunshots, and then the man got back into Barentine's car, hitched a ride from the crime scene, and returned home. Then, in an even more dramatic version of the story, Barentine claimed the man he had picked up was actually his neighbor. Police verified that Barentine's house was less than a mile from the crime scene and, confounded by varying stories, arrested him as a prime suspect in J.B. and Tracy's murders. But in the coming months, 
Barentine's story began to fall apart. He recanted his confession, stating that he had made up the stories in order to get the reward money offered in the case. He stated that, during the course of his four-hour interview, he became tired and the police had tricked him into telling the story. On December 17th, DNA results from the autopsy came back and showed that Barentine was not a match to the semen found at the crime scene. Johnny Barentine was released from prison, and the trail to finding the girl's killer went cold for nearly 20 years. Then, just last year, a break came from an unlikely source that turned this decades-old case on its head thanks to new advances in genealogical DNA. So I have a problem with one of these these scenarios here is there's always a guy with some low IQ and they always make a point to tell you that it's the low IQ and they always falsely confess. Yes, but he this had. guy inserted himself in the story and then he changed did. his story so many times that he just, he made himself look guilty. He did. He made himself look guilty because he told all these different stories and I guess they kind of felt like he was tiptoeing around the truth. And then after he was arrested, he just came out and said, I just wanted the reward money basically. But he, he, his story was that he first saw a man. With tattoos, which makes him seem really guilty already, number so one. He saw a man with tattoos and the guy hit him, right? That was, that was his first story or his first story was somebody, some truck hit him. He said that a truck hit him. So he went to this or supposedly went to the same gas station where the girls were last seen, where Tracy called her mom, where they were supposed to be leaving. He left his house. He says he's going to get milk for his toddler. And then when he comes back home, he's all disheveled, and he tells his wife, this black truck hit me coming out of Herring Avenue, which if he said Herring Avenue at that moment, that is kind of curious because that's later the area where her car was found. And secondly, the second story he made up was he saw some tattooed man hitchhiking on his way to get milk for his two-year-old son at 1130 at night, and he picked him up, and the guy got in the car with two teenage girls and then the guy said to him follow me yeah he said follow me and he then took he, him shot, out there. he shot the two girls and yeah. then he got him in the car and he was like okay now take me home yeah and then he went a step further and said that that man was actually his neighbor and they were able to rule that out later the neighbor had a solid alibi so all of it was complete maloney he was in prison from september until december until dna came back that just said he was completely making this up yeah it's just, it's kind of an odd story. I mean, it's its a person inserting themselves where they really didn't need, need to be inserted. Yeah, he was trying to get the reward money, but he is making himself guilty. It was very I mean, Henry Lee Lucas yeah, of him, for sure. He's yeah. totally making himself look guilty. But then they turned it on its head and said that it was because he had a seventh grade IQ, basically. Yeah, but that's always the case. Why is that always the case with all these people? Like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know, baby, because it's easier to, to pin crime on them. I don't know. But did he, but my point is, did he really have it? I mean, we talked about, you know, in our last cinema, we talked about Chad Falk saying that he had this low IQ and then manipulated the shit out of all these people for so long. It's just, it's just always that thing. They always bring that up. Oh, I have a low IQ. Right. I don't then again, it. It, maybe it was just their excuse. I don't know. Maybe just another excuse. In March, 2019, 46 year old Coley McCraney was arrested after his DNA taken from a public database was allegedly matched to DNA found at the crime scene. McCraney, a native of Ozark, Alabama, was 26 at the time of the murders and lived just minutes away from the crime scene and had never been on the radar as a suspect. At the time of his arrest, McCraney was married with children, had formerly worked as a truck driver, 
and was named bishop of a local church. He also did a short stint in the Air Force from 1993 to 1997. So, how in the world was he matched to a 20-year-old double murder? McCraney's DNA was pulled from a source called GED Match after local law enforcement paired with Parabon Nanolabs to search online DNA profiles from Ancestry and Genealogy Services. The same companies were previously used to locate the infamous Golden State Killer in 2018. We'll be back after this quick break. Hi, I'm Cassie. I'm Tiffany. And we're the hosts of Happy Hour Gets Weird. On our podcast, we talk all things weird. Like UFOs, Bigfoot, astrology, ghosts, and even true crime. And every episode, we create a fabulous new cocktail. So fabulous. If you're looking for a little weirdness, please search Happy Hour Gets Weird on your favorite podcast platform. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. So Annie, guess what? What, Jay? I just got off the phone with Mike Diamond. You know, Mike Deli Meats. Deli Meats. Yeah, and he just told me that we have a Patreon set up. We do have a Patreon. 100%. Hot diggity dog. And we are so excited to be part of this Patreon with ParanormalWarehouse.com because guess what? You can get our podcast exclusively a week early before everybody else gets to hear it. And that's pretty sweet. Not just can you get Serial Spirits a week early, you can get all the shows that Paranormal Warehouse has to offer, plus all kinds of Paranormal Warehouse merch that is not available to the public. Patreon.com forward slash Paranormal Warehouse. Guys, this is where it's at. Live out your best quarantine days watching Paranormal Warehouse. You won't regret it. Alex King from the American Ghost Hunter Show. He just got a sweet cereal spirits tank top. And let me tell you what, his nipples do hang out of them. His nipples have never looked better. So become a patron today. Go to patreon.com forward slash paranormal warehouse. Get our show a week early with some other cool stuff. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Why in the world would a 26-year-old military man murder J.B. and Tracy? The Dothan Eagle, the town's local newspaper, reported in June 2019 that in 1994, while married to his first wife and stationed at an Air Force base in Mississippi, McCraney assaulted her, striking her in the head and face with a handgun. She also claimed that McCraney locked her and her baby in a room. McCraney was arrested and charged with aggravated assault, unlawful detention, and possession of a concealed weapon. McCraney and the woman later divorced. But does this mean that Coley McCraney murdered J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett? Since his arrest, McCraney and his family have maintained his innocence, stating that there are other players in the story that need to be questioned. In August 2019, McCraney's attorneys asked for documents recording interviews from former Ozark officer Renee Crum, who stated she had information regarding Tracy and J.B.'s murders. Crum allegedly told a blogger that a former police officer had committed the double murder 
because one or both of the girls had information regarding the police department's involvement in local drug trade. Then in September, McCraney's attorneys requested access to documents regarding the 2006 suicide of former Ozark officer Butch Jones, although they would not say how this was relevant to their case. They also requested a list of any officers who would have carried a 9mm or a 380 at the time J.B. and Tracy were murdered. McCraney has been charged with multiple counts of capital murder and could face the death penalty if found guilty. The trial, originally slated to begin in February, has been pushed back to May in light of recent world events. So, did Coley McCraney really murder J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett, or is an even more sinister plot going to carry out in court this spring? I don't know, Shay. What do you think about that one? So I want to I want to talk about something here because I know that there was evidence that was submitted why they thought it was a police officer. And one was because didn't they say they found one of the girl's ID on the dashboard? I think that was a really interesting part in the case that maybe they didn't dive into enough. Okay, so their purses are both there untouched. JB's... This is the girls we're talking about. Right. JB's driver's license is on the dashboard of the car when they find it. The window is rolled down just a few inches and the doors are unlocked. So think about this scenario as it plays out. This is kind of a country road that they're on. So these girls are lost. It's kind of late. They're driving down this back road. Think about it. A police officer pulls them over. She cracks her window. She gets her driver's license out to hand it to him. And he says, I need you two to step out of the car. Their pants are wet from the knees down, which indicates there was a creek nearby and their shoes were muddy. So that kind of indicates maybe he walked them back into the woods and then made them get down on their knees. If you think about a police officer having anything to play in this, that is the perfect scenario for the way the evidence is laid out. Okay, if so, why else would they have pulled over on the side of a road in the middle of the night and just open their door to some guy who walked up there? No, you're going to open your window or roll down your window three or four inches with your ID in hand if there's a cop pulling you over. And that to me is a really crucial part of the, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a detective by any means, but that, I mean, that just puts up red flags for me. You have their IDs, all their stuff's right there. I've been in trouble. I'm not going to lie. I've had my run-ins with the police before. Well, we've all been pulled over at least No, once. but I mean, I've been told to step out of the car. I've been told to sit on the curb. <laughs> I mean, I, that's what they do. They have you do all that True kind story. of stuff. And, right. And, and there's no sign that they were sexually assaulted by that. I mean, like no penetration or anything like that, right? Okay, there so was here's the deal. semen found on her The on first the articles, The first articles written after... They were murdered in 1999. Don't say anything specifically about sexual assault. But in some of the newer articles that I'm reading since Coley McCraney has been arrested, there were a couple on there that said there was evidence that one of the girls may have been sexually assaulted. Originally, they just said that semen was present on JB's shirt and her bra, which made them think, okay, this is more like a peeping tom type of indecent like the guys exposure jerking himself off basically i wasn't going to say it in that form but yes but i so. mean that's just basically what if you think about it he's masturbating right while they're 
on their knees or Correct. something like that. That I mean, was that's, their that's initial the... thought. But then in a couple of these other articles I've read, this is so confusing. I literally sat for probably six hours going through all these different articles from national news to their local news. And, you know, some of these news authorities pointing fingers at the other one saying, this one's giving false information on cases. Their reporting isn't good. It's insane. And Coley McCraney's family and Coley McCraney himself have stood up and said, I didn't have anything to do with this. And so he's his DNA is pulled from GED match. So basically, at some point, his DNA has been given to one of these genealogy services. I did read something that in 1998, he had submitted his DNA to someone. I don't even know where you send it to do a, a paternity test. I guess his paternity, the paternity of a, a child was in question. And so he had submitted his DNA at that point. But whether that was the sample that was loaded into GED match, I'm not sure. Or if he had signed up for something like Ancestry or 23andMe. But basically, all of these labs are pairing up with these types of labs and cross-referencing this DNA. So he could have submitted his DNA for something totally different and that's how they found him, just like that's how they found the Golden State Killer. Yeah, and, it, and maybe in a way it crosses ethical lines because I guess you could throw HIPAA into it in some way because it's some form of medical testing that you're doing. But also, I mean, if you freely, I think, put your DNA out there for something like that, it should be in a database. There should be a database that has everybody's DNA because there is so much, so many unsolved cases and so many things that hinge on the fact that DNA is going to solve the case. That's why when they did all these cases back in the day before the technology of DNA, they saved everything. So right. they knew because they knew one day that that stuff was going to be available and they could test it all. And I think that if you're putting yourself out there enough to willingly give your DNA, I mean, I've spit into a vial for 23andMe and sent it out there. I mean, they right. probably have my DNA somewhere too. And, and when like, you did that, were you thinking, oh man, somewhere down the road, if I decide that I'm going to commit a crime, this could be used no, against me. No, I right. mean, you don't think about something like that. And I like don't that. think that when, okay, so when you did that, did you sign any type of waiver or disclaimer that says this is going to be put in a database somewhere? No, because you purchase it yourself and you just spit into the vial so and you send saying, it out there. I, I'm not fighting for these criminals, but I'm also saying that if this is how that's going to be used, if you're cross-referencing these records, there needs to be some type of a waiver that you sign in there that's going to make people at least stop and think, I'm putting my DNA out there for the world, and this could come back at me at some point. Yeah, but then there's all the subpoenas and everything else they can get for the stuff anyway. So what is it? what does it matter? Because if they you know, serve a warrant to these people to have that that DNA sent to them, if they see that, oh, Brendan is one time paid for the 23andMe, he must have DNA and whatever labs that was sent to, I'm sure they could give a warrant to them to get whatever DNA is left in their refrigerator of mine. They probably could, or, you know, just the, it's just the profile online. I don't think it's actually the DNA that's saved anywhere. It's just the DNA profile. And but so still, that's how I they're cross-referencing them. That's what them. I mean. It's just right. the DNA profile and they have to have access to that. I'm sure it's not just floating around for them to just be like, oh, oh, Brennan Chase DNA profiles right here online. No, I, they probably have to get some, some access to it. But I also want to kind of talk to you about we're in Alabama, right? We're just outside right. of Ozark, Alabama. Yep. And the man that they pinned on is an African-American male. He is. And I mean, we're talking the deep South. We're talking race, you know, barriers and everything like that still happen 
here in the 21st century. And this could be a case of that too. There's even one article that I read where another African-American man who is in prison for life came forward and said, the police tried to get me. They put me in a cell with Coley McCraney and made me try to get a confession from him or get information. And I know that happens a lot, but you are talking about the deep South here where you've got to look along some of these racial lines and say, is that, is this why this happened? Okay. So when we were researching this story, you and I got, or you got on YouTube and found this show that came on, I don't know, was court TV for, I I don't know what it was called, but the show was called Haunting Evidence. And there were two, there was a paranormal investigator and there were two psychics on there. The paranormal investigator, we'll give him a shout out. His name is Patrick Burns. I've met him a couple, a few times. He goes to Mid-South every year with Keith Age, our buddy Keith Age. But yeah, I mean, I didn't had no idea that was even the show he was on. But So he's on there. He's got these two psychics on there and they take them to the area where JB and Tracy were murdered. And they both get this. And I'm not saying this is 100% accurate, but if they really didn't know anything about this case, all of their information that they gave was actually kind of on point. They had a lot of valid points, really big points that they missed. But what's the one thing that they got totally, completely wrong if Coley McCraney is actually the murderer. Yeah, they got a, a white male. They both said it was a white male yeah. in their 30s. And when you think about murders and serial killers, how often does someone who is targeting someone else pick someone who is outside of their race? Well, yeah, and that the, the truth is there's one guy that we all heard of. What's his name? Uh, Sam Little, is that his name? Yeah, Sam Little, Supposedly, the man in Ohio. who the most be right. prolific serial killer Correct. of all time. But then again, it could be another case of, oh, yeah, I did that one. Oh, yeah, I did that one. And you've, it's completely fabricated stories. But I don't really know of how many stories of African-American serial killers who have some kind of ritual. And maybe this wasn't a ritual per se, but I mean, if it went down in the show, they talk about how he took him out of the car got them on their knees, and one of the things was that he masturbated it in front of the girls while right. they were still alive. Right. And that is almost like a ritual. Like, he's not touching them, you know, and I'm sure the evidence points differently because we don't know the evidence because right. it's still an open case. They still haven't tried it. This is the what they were picking up on, and, I mean, to me, that sounds rit- ritualistic, and I don't really know of too many African-American killers doing something like that, taking that long and, and bringing someone out there and it's somebody obviously who knew the area where to go because right. it was a desolate area. But right. it just, I don't know, the parallels were weird. And when you do cases like this, I'm sure, you know, you're doing a TV show. The cops aren't going to be like, oh, yeah, that's 100% correct. Oh, yeah, that exactly the evidence that we caught. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, they don't know because it's an open case. There are a lot of people pointing fingers in the other direction. And so, like I said, it was supposed to start the first week of February, but because of COVID-19 and all the havoc that that has wreaked, it's now been pushed back to, I think it's May the 4th is the trial start date. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in court. If Coley McCraney's attorneys have been able to gather the information that they want from this other officer, Renee Crum, who says, she has more information. You know, why would these girls, these two 17-year-old girls, know something about the police involvement in the local drug trade? That I'm not sure. 
And then also this suicide that happened in 2006 of this other officer and the fact that they've gone back to see even which officers were carrying the kind of guns that they, you know, they found the ammo there um, at the crime scene. It's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. And there's a part of me that really feels like maybe Coley McCraney is a scapegoat in this. I I can think so too. But, you know, one of the things you always want to think about in all these unsolved cases is that there always ends up being some botched police investigation or some kind of corruption. Right. right. And it, it, it could just be that conspiracy. You know, I'm a conspiracy theory guy. You guys know that by now. But it just... It's just the parallels are so weird that there's always some fall person or the case goes unsolved for so long till there's pressure put on them to solve the case and then bam, they come up with a suspect. The two things that keep getting to me are her driver's license on the dashboard and that window cracked. I can just see that scenario playing out in my head of them being pulled over and it makes so much sense that I can't see how anything else would have played out. I mean, you know, killers have done it before. Ted Bundy, that was one of his ploys. Is he said right. he was a police officer, and the people were like, well, he's driving a Volkswagen. But so maybe he posed as a police officer. I don't know. He could it, have. It could totally have happened, but I, I see that as how that's playing out in this. He was a military guy. You know, he was in the Air Force and got into some trouble when he was in the Air Force. You're talking about the suspect. Coley McCraney, Coley right. McCraney. So, you know, maybe he had access to a vehicle that looked like law enforcement i don't know maybe he used that against them yeah you never know and you look at people and you think you can trust people and sometimes you just really don't know him and colin mccraney could be the guy i guess we'll find out if he's convicted of the crime and what evidence actually prosecution brings forth to say that he definitely is the guy as this one plays out in court and we hear anything about it we will bring you guys any updates that we hear because you know i'm all into this one right now and and seeing how it plays out and I think it's important to keep these cases alive. And this is a case that needs to be kept alive because there were two innocent victims who doing what teenage kids do, going to a party. And they both were worried about getting back before curfew. Right. And they did the right thing and pulled into a gas station and to call their mom and say, hey, you know, we're going to be late. And unfortunately, that became the end of their life. And it's sad, but we, we hope that there's justice done for them the right way. So, Shay, we're here. We're quarantined. Everyone is quarantined. And we want to keep everyone entertained during this quarantine. What's quarantined? What? So what's quarantine mean? Oh, man. Okay. So what I'm thinking is maybe for the next few weeks, as all this plays out, what if we did some listener submission stories? I'm down with that. I'm totally down with true crime, paranormal. Like, what, what do you want? Anything. So what I'd like to hear is for anyone who loves serial spirits and would like to have their story read on a special episode, if you can send that to serialspirits at AOL.com. In the coming weeks, while we're still quarantined and have some extra time on our hands, we're going to record some extra episodes and read listener submissions. We want your ghost stories. We want your conspiracy theories. We want your true crime, anything that you know of, anything that you may have been involved in or is from your hometown. We would love to hear it. So serialspirits at AOL.com. And if we read your story, we'll give you a shout out on the air. You know what? We might even take it one step further. If you're that bored and you don't want to type it up, maybe you can say, I have a really interesting story. Tell us what the story is and maybe you can call in. 
and we'll have you on the show to tell oh, the story that'd be yourself. Even better. Yeah. And maybe even if we get a lot of cool stories, I might even bring my friend Russell Ryan. Oh, right. From the Unbelievers podcast on to read some of the stories too, because he is a great storyteller. He's a great storyteller, that man. he puts very good twists on a lot of stories. So maybe I'll ask Russ. He doesn't know yet. I'm blasting this out there. We are. Russ, if you hear this, but I'm going to talk to you anyway. Just pulling the rug right out from under you, Russ, because we love you. But I mean, that would be a fun thing to do. And I know know, we're all going to have a lot of time on our hands. We're going to be bored out of our minds. And we want to bring you entertainment while you're sitting here quarantined. Twiddling your thumbs like we have been. Fortnite gets frustrating after you lose six rounds in a row. And I just, you know, it's what makes it worse, too, is like the weather's still kind of shitty. I know. It's just not a pretty time to be quarantined. So let us entertain you. Send your stories to serial spirits at AOL.com. If you're brave and you want to record them on the air, you can do that with us as well. Um, We look forward to hearing what you guys have to say. Or. Yeah, like Annie said, if you want to just record them on your phone and send them to us, just make sure that you don't use the F-bomb, right? Keep it at least five minutes to ten minutes long. That's good. Five to ten, yeah. At at the most. And uh, just say your name, who you are, where you're from, and yeah, bickety-bam. Bickety-bam. There you go. All right. And for those of you who haven't watched Tiger King, and go. Do it now. Do it now. 100%. Netflix. Go. I'm not giving you my password, though. So, Weeb, do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up this episode of the program? We love you guys. I know this is a hard time for everybody, but keep your chins up, keep your fingers clean, and we're all going to get through this together. You guys, you're not alone. You know, we're all we're all going through it together, and I don't want to be that guy to go out and say it, but your government doesn't care. All we have is each other. Look we're out for all your neighbor. In this together. That was my South Park version of a high school musical song. You're welcome. Yeah, that was terrible, but okay. I love you anyway. All right. But you're not alone. We're all in this together. Look out for your neighbor. Stay inside. Stay home. Stay safe. We'll see you next time, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. Find us weekly on all your podcasting platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you subscribe. Our theme song was written and produced by Annie Weibel for Serial Spirits, the podcast. Check us out on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits. You can always find Serial Spirits on www.paranormalwarehouse.com. Check out all the amazing shows that Paranormal Warehouse has to offer. Also on Twitter at Serial Spirits. Guys, be aware and be safe. We'll see you next time.